Hi everyone, um, Tyler here. Just wanted to, uh, yeah, apologize for our um, live stream not being uh, functional on Sunday morning, uh, yesterday. Um, and so I thought it might be, what, useful? Yeah. Uh, just to deliver it this way. Um, So that you have it, um, but the uh, yeah, just the thing that was kind of uh, interesting about that day is there's sort of three preaching tasks um, that I was trying to grapple with. Uh, one was, as always, the gospel and how we uh, apply it to our lives, how we hear something of who God is and who we're called to be in it. Um, I, I took up that question of uh, whose head is this, whose title, as kind of uh, kind of a discipleship question and refrain, uh, sort of echoing throughout. Um, the other, you know, contextual piece was, of course, the 5,000 people who have now died since October 7th in the war between Israel and Palestine and Gaza um, as a result of the uh, Hamas's incursion um, and the, the kind of stuff that came up around that where um, I'm getting this second hand but like in that meeting you were at mm. Whose side are we on? Sure. Uh, an ordained person asking that question out loud. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, so, and, and then, are we called to, yeah. <laughs> so, trying to answer that question. And then, as, as all these things happen, um, it was, of course, also the uh, launch of the stewardship campaign. So I tried to thread this image of whose head is this, whose title through, uh, what does that mean for daily discipleship? What does that mean for how we can understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And um, how can we understand, use that to understand uh, what it means to take a good hard look at um, our giving? joke uh, because this is wasn't on camera there's a there's kind of a, a joke in stewardship circles about when if Episcopalians were to practice full immersion baptism which you know the good neat and tidy Episcopalians are not going to do that in any <laughs> not so common not so common uh, but if they were to practice that um, the image that Rick Felton used to leave leave us with was that they would everything would go under the water except the wallet that was whipped out of the back pocket and held held above the water. Um, so a joke, but also kind of um, a stinging indictment of the way in which um, our living and giving does not always match what we profess with our lips 
in, in worship. And that's um, like a kind of a particular denominational inheritance that yeah. I think really needs to be interrogated. If we believe that the Episcopal way is a life-giving way that the world desperately needs, which I do, mm-hmm. and I know you do. I do. Um, then um, it needs to be uh, supported. And the sort of waspy world where we don't talk about money because uh, those who have it don't talk about it. I mean, it's all very odd. Yes. Um, and anti-incarnational. And so I just kind of like getting it on the table that it costs money to run this place. It's run on a shoestring and there's an amazing amount of ministry that God's doing through this place happening. Uh, and sort of like an exhortation to um, ask of our wallets who's being worshipped there. Mm-hmm. Right? So, And the kind of beauty and um, what harmony and alignment that comes from having our living and our giving match what we profess with our lips. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's like a, this wonderfully kind of integrated, comprehensive um, path, I think. Um, and you know, the place, the thing we don't want to talk about and the thing we want to avoid is usually the place of deepest transformation, right? Mm-hmm. That's true in psychologically, spiritually, um, and like if we're honest, there is a taboo about money. Mm-hmm. And that means it actually holds the place for the, the greatest transformation, the, the greatest integration of all aspects uh, of ourselves, those places that we've portioned off mm-hmm. from God's presence. <laughs> uh, and bringing that into alignment as well. Yeah. Um, it's, so it's uncomfortable to talk about it, mm-hmm. to practice it, but what I've sort of found over the years is that as much as I resist, it's actually one of the most transformational places mm-hmm. where, um, like, I'm most fearful around money. Like, I would, I'm like okay with dying, <laughs> but I worry about finances a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, three kids, student loans, mortgage, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's a place of great anxiety, like, for me, and I think for other people, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, being able to, like, go there, right? Like, that's one of the things I've learned is, like, over the years, is, like, discipleship means there's no no-go areas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and where you don't want to go, you go. And where I don't want to go is, oh, I don't want to, like, think about money I'm like because mm-hmm. it's never good news <laughs> I, mean, I mean just an academic and a social worker and then a priest and a therapist I mean it's, it's not like it's ever been good news uh-huh. uh, but the fear around that and the like protectiveness and the tight fistedness around that when it's brought into the light of God's grace and right. uh, that fear gets undone uh, in a way that um, just feels very sort of liberating to me. Does that make sense? Yeah, that protectiveness around these things is, as much as we can, uh, <laughs> keeping out the yeah. light of grace Yeah. Uh, from yeah. washing over the things we're most uh, 
mm-hmm. afraid about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and we should probably do something on like sex, money. Yeah. Like, but all this stuff you family. can't. Yeah, family, <laughs> mar- everything that maritable squabbles, whatever, yeah. right? Um, child rearing. Mm-hmm. But all like it's it's all the things that we want to sort of portion off somehow uh, from God's grace that mm-hmm. um, A, are already known and touched and yeah. the quicker we can kind of like let the walls around that fall down and kind of enter it with the spirit of like curiosity, exploration, yeah. adventure. Yeah. Like I use that phrase, journey into generosity and I know people hate the phrase like journey I think like, you hate the phrase journey. No, Nancy Appleby hates the word journey. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I value what Nancy Appleby hates, I often will hate too. So, <laughs> But it is this journey because yeah. um, there is something gets undone in us. Like the walls around those portioned off places of ourselves come down and what we discover is not just an earthquake and desolation, but an open space where grace can dance and the you know the wind mm-hmm. of the spirit can blow and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's the spirit in which this was preached. The um, the best part, I think, not of the sermon but of the scriptures, is that surnamed by God, mm. and that Isaiah reading is like knockout good. It was. And if I didn't have any of the three other tasks to accomplish, I would go way into like, what does it mean to be surnamed by God? Mm-hmm. And so there's a fleeting reference to that. There's a fleeting reference to the song, but is that good? Yes. All okay. right. So in do I say in this morning's gospel? Am I pretending that I'm preaching? This I think you just just okay. read us what you got. There. All right. Yeah. This morning's gospel, we find ourselves smack dab in, in the middle of Matthew's passion narrative. Jesus made his quote unquote triumphal entry through the service entrance to off key hosannas, branches hurriedly snapped off scraggly trees and tattered coats t- tossed down in the dust as a makeshift red carpet. It's a conscious, prophetic subversion of Herod on his war horse meant to show us what real power, God's power manifests in weakness and loving service, looks like when it comes into the world with nothing held back. We associate power, especially in these dark times, with stockpiled weapons, troops massed, and laser-guided missiles raining down. Real power, Jesus shows us, is washing, feeding, agendaless being with, in, and as love. Needless to say, this revelation of real power is open-handed letting go and letting be, as feeding and washing love, as dying and rising forgiveness, even of one's persecutors, is a threat to all the powers and dominions of this world, where might is right, the one with the most toys wins, and image maintenance rules the day. That's why, in an act of obsequious flattery, the Pharisees make such a show of calling Jesus teacher and laud him as sincere, giving him props for not regarding people with partiality. Jesus represents a direct threat 
to the religious religious authorities' grip on power. The goal here is, is nothing less than to catch Jesus out and to find some excuse to put him to death and rid themselves of this meddlesome rabbi who, despite having no place to lay his head, seems at home everywhere, as if the whole world were the splendor of his father's sanctuary and the trees of the wood acquire hymning the father's glory. Such a one, utterly at home in the father's love wherever he is, even nailed to the cross, mocked and scourged. Such a one is a grave threat to authority, religious or otherwise, that wants to enforce who's in and who's out, who's got it and who's done, who doesn't, who's pure and who's impure, wants to enforce all of that uh, at the tip of a spear. So we should be very clear that Jesus is answering uh, the question with another question. A classic rabbinical move is simply a refusal to play that whole game. He won't be caught up in their machinery and their machinations. Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? This isn't some subtle inquiry, that is to say, into church and state. It's a calculated ruse, a plot to entrap Jesus and cook up an excuse to get rid of him without too much fuss or upsetting the existing order of things. This is a collision of self-emptying power poured out, sorry, this is a collision of self-emptying love poured out for all with self-centered power, concerned only with itself. Full stop. When love comes into the world, we trap him and kill him, even though he is the one in whom the peace that passes understanding lives. Such is the bewildering tragedy of being human. But Jesus' question, whose head is this and whose title, is one of those questions that can open our hands, open our hearts, and make us aware of our timbered vision, the log, the log in our own eye. And I ask, actually ask this question a lot, sometimes even throughout the day, in a meeting, before celebrating Mass, walking to the store, at someone's bedside, driving the car around the dinner table with Michelle and the kids. Whose head is this and whose title? I imagine each and every moment of life as a quivering drop of sealing wax and the opportunity to inquire into whose face is being sealed and pressed here. Depending on where I'm coming from, where I'm planted, from which living spring or dried up well I'm drinking, someone's face is sealed in the melted wax of that relational exchange. Mine or the other as Christ's, I wonder. Do I see the other or my ideas about the other? Am I truly present with the other without agenda, without expectation? Or am I using them to fulfill some unmet need? For example, if I've grown up thinking I'm unlovable and the only way to feel loved is to engage in people play pleasing, am I ever really with that person? Aren't I simply using them to get what I want, to get what I think I need? Isn't it really my face being stamped on the encounter with this precious other? Who I need them to be has 
very little to do with who they actually are, after all. In this case, does the other even really have a faith? Haven't I made of the encounter an idol with my ugly mug impressed, imposed, sealed, fixedly there? Whose head is this and whose title? The poet Paul Valery reportedly nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature no less than 12 times writes, seeing is forgetting the name of the thing one sees. Often names, titles, fixed ideas, prejudices and preconceptions blind us to the uncontainable effervescence of the other. My mother had this phrase she'd use sometimes, I've got you pegged, mister, uh, when she sussed my brother and I were up to no good, which was quite often, I've got you pegged. That's how a lot of our encounters go. We've got people pegged, pinned down. Uh, the shimmering puddle of wax hardens into versions of, she's always like this, he's never like that. They are a such and such kind of person. But love is the forgetting of all those names in the act of seeing. It's really just an echo of what Gregory of Nyssa said. Every concept formed by the intellect in an attempt to comprehend and circumscribe divine nature can succeed only in fashioning an idol, not in making God known. Every concept, every idea, each description held as the quote-unquote way things are becomes an idol. One of the great theologians, Gregory, is talking, of course, about theological language here, but the same hold true, holds true of our concepts of people, of creatures, I mean, even ourselves. The word orange juice is not the taste of orange juice. It would be insane to think we knew what orange juice was like without ever having taken a sip. But that is what we do, actually, a lot of the time. Whose head is this and whose title? Valerie's seeing as the forgetting of the name of the thing one sees finds its equivalence, I think, in Christian dispositions like poverty of spirit, self-emptying, radical welcome. Love sees past the descriptions to the person, Christ the stranger, at the heart of every encounter. Love knows each stranger as surnamed by God. Love doesn't see Israelis as only quote-unquote colonialist oppressors and clap its hands at the slaughter of innocents like we've seen. Nor does love see Palestinians only as quote-unquote terrorists and seek vengeance on the first Palestinian-American six-year-old one comes across, as we saw in the news. Love recognizes that these are idolatrous divisions, idolatrous divisions that God in Christ through the Holy Spirit has come among us to undo. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through bars of iron, as it says in our passage from Isaiah. Whose head is this and whose title 
opens us onto the vast expanse of boundaryless love where we recognize maybe terrifyingly with Jean-Paul Sartre that we are half victim and half accomplice like everybody else. And we're implicated in solidarity with each and every person. We can decry the attacks on Israel and raise our voices against civilian casualties in the ground war in Gaza. We can be a people who live in intimate relationship with the Prince of Peace. People who breathe in his breathed out peace in the locked, barred, gated closeness of whatever upper room we've locked ourselves into. We can be a people who know that there is no way to peace, but that peace, being peace, is the way. And it's an inside job. Peace is an inside job because to only see our image of the other in an encounter whose head is this, whose title is actually murderous. We erase the strangeness of the other in favor of comfortable descriptions or use them to get what we think we need from them. We don't see the other, we eat them, as Simone Faye says. Ouch. The good news of the gospel is that there is another way, one that this broken and hurting and divided world of ours desperately needs, one that God has literally died to show us. With the Thessalonians, we can receive the unconditional belovedness that is our birthright. We can begin to feel our way, to ease our way into this belovedness. Once we begin to befriend the love of God that's poured into our hearts, by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us, we are less prone to use other people as means to ends, as transactional fixes for our met needs. I don't need to make you like me because I think I'm unlovable. That whole project collapses in a great, not one stone will be left standing apocalypse of love. The seed of seeking fulfillment and making others do our bidding falls to the ground and something more open-handed, spacious, and lovingly responsive bodies forth. Knowing ourselves to be loved, we are freed to love others, to be with them without agenda, without making them in our image. Knowing ourselves to be loved, perhaps the stranger's face is seen for the first time. Knowing ourselves to be loved, perhaps the all too familiar faces of our so-called loved ones become mysteriously strange to us. Knowing ourselves to be loved, perhaps we forget the name of the one we see and love them from our poverty for the first time. This is life-changing, world-changing work, and the miraculous thing is that it's God's work in us. All that's needed is our consent, our yes, our willingness put on the darn free wedding bank, uh, garment and join the party. You know by now our stewardship theme for this year is a place of springs, a reference to Psalm 84, where we get that heartbreakingly intimate portrait of the sparrow who has found her house and the swallow a nest where she may lay her young by the side of our altars by the side of your altars, O Lord of hosts. 
It's from that picture of intimacy with God nested in the God who nests in us that we get those lines of our theme. Those who go through the desolate valley will find it a place of springs. That's ultimately why the cathedral is here, to remind us of God's steadfast covenant faithfulness to us, of God's presence and action in our lives, uh, even when what we see at first glance is a desolate valley. The cathedral is a place where the waters of God's love irrigate us, wean us off our stories of fear, scarcity, lack, and not enough, and open us to the stunning fact of our irrevocable belovedness. And we exist as an open door to this transfiguring encounter with God. Through prayer, spiritual formation, weekly worship, dwelling on God as revealed to us in Holy Scripture, service to the last, to the least of these, as bread to feed, water to wash, oil to heal, and wine to slake the thirst of the parched, we play our admittedly very humble little part uh, by being loved into loving, uh, in being made beautiful by the beautiful one, Christ Jesus. It's from having the place of spring's beautiful one at the center of our individual and corporate lives that beloved Place of Springs community emerges. And a look at the news with climate change, war in Ukraine and the Middle East, a deeply divided nation where fewer and fewer people even see each other, let alone listen to one another. One look at all that and it's obvious that we are in desperate need of another way of seeing and being in the world, another way of seeing and being that God's kingdom, not this fractious, fractured hellscape of our own devising might come to be in and through these very hands and feet, our very hands and feet, these very peace-witnessing lips, and these unstopped ears open and responsive to the cries of the world. It's life-changing work. It's world-changing work, and it costs money. And we ask whose head is this, whose title, not just of our encounters with others, but also of how we portion our time, talent, and treasure. Who's worshipped with my money? Does our living and giving match what we profess with our lips? I want us to make that old saw about everything except Episcopalian's water, wallets going under the waters at baptism, all of me, O oh Lord, except my wallet. Just that. Let's make it an old song. Something immature, something unhealthy that we've grown past on our journey into generous living and giving. So my prayer is that we all pray, that we all reflect, we all ask the question, whose head is this, whose title? We take an honest look and then that we give and give generously. 
help keep St. Mark's a place of springs for people from every tribe, language, and nation. Amen. Amen.